Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, wait, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And the King of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Things That Made England. The idea of the show is to decide on those things that make England as she is. The country that, despite it all, we feel lucky to be part of. There's two of us in this show. My name is David Crowther of the History of England podcast. And on the other side of the microphone is... Royfield Brown from 10 American Presidents in Mid-Atlantic. Right, Royfield. So this week, it's my go, okay? This is when I get to lecture you. And I have to warn you, this week, I've got a bit of a lecture, a bit of a history lesson, because I don't feel comfortable unless I'm lecturing somebody, okay? Mansplaining, I believe they call it nowadays, David. Yes, Slightly different approach than this week, I reckon, uh, because I think this is a genuine question to which I do not know the answer. The other ones where I've presented to you, it's been, look, I know what the answer is. Presumably, you're going to agree with me. Well, this time, I think it's a chat. So mm-hmm. the English national flag, Royfield. I know it well. The flag of St. George. Excellent. So for me, a national flag should be an opportunity for togetherness and community, a shared identity. And, uh, you know, if you go to Scotland and Wales, that is actually very much the case. I dug out some stats. We said that in Scotland and Wales, over 80% of people there equate their flags with patriotism and pride. That's good, isn't it? Well, you'd like to think so. The whole idea of a flag is that, isn't it? It's a, it's a rallying point uh, and it's, uh, it should be a symbol which is above division. Absolutely. So surely we should put the flag of St. George, into our cabinet. But my worry is actually that I'm not sure that's the case in England. So for me, the English flag has in the past certainly become associated with factionalism and, well, hideous racist and far-right views, and it's turned into a thing of disunity and 
almost xenophobia rather than that thing about unity. So for me, the question is, should the flag go into the cabinet? Have we done enough recently? Uh, has that attitude changed from, I don't know, say the 70s and 80s to allow us to put in the cabinet? That's my proposition this week, Royfield. Oh, all right. Well, uh, let's explore, David. Let's explore. Well, I, first of all, what I'm going to do is give you that history lesson I promised you, because I know you've been waiting for that. Uh, and that'll give you a chance to think. And then, uh, then we can discuss. Yeah, how does that sound on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being very good and 1 being rubbish? Um, I've, I've already thought I've got all my opinions of pre-canned on, 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 on the flag of St. George, but mansplain away, Mr. Crowder, mansplain away. Excellent. Right. So where did it come from? That's what I, uh, I did a bit of, um, work on my shedcast as it happens. We did an episode on nationalism. So I had an opportunity to look at the flag there and where it came from, because it's an odd choice as a patron saint, isn't he? St. George. He's a martyr mm. Cappadocian soldier that's in Turkey of the late 3rd century. And he's been chosen as patron not just by us, but by Ethiopia, Germany, Portugal, and Armenia, and, of course, Georgia. You won't surprised to know. Edward I, 1277. This is the first example of the use of the Red Cross symbol in a nationally sponsored context. So, basically, that's Edward I's invasion of Wales. But it was Edward III who really went for it because he chose St. George as the patron of his new order of the Garter. So for Edward, choosing St. George was an act of cultural warfare against the French. And we've always been keen on that, have we not? Um, (laughs) And he did it because I think in France they were setting up all these orders of chivalry and he wanted to find a kind of muscular Christian type figure. And um, so that's why he chose St. George, because St. George was a soldier. So it made sense in the context of a chivalric order. So that's why St. George. Through the reigns of Edward III and the Fourth, then, it was more a royal than a national symbol. The chap who turned it into a national symbol rather than just a royal symbol was Henry V, when it became established as a national rallying figure, because Henry consciously promoted the saint as England's patron before it had been people like Edward the Confessor and that sort of thing, actually, as much as anybody, uh, Edward the Martyr as well. But Henry V, he wrote these letters home talking about what he was doing, open letters to the whole country, about what they were doing, why they were doing it. He called George's help at Agincourt and all the rest of it. And, of course, the famous lines uh, onto the breach that Shakespeare used. From there, actually, George's cult moved into the guilds. A lot of guilds pick it up, and it becomes a major religious feast in 1461. There's lots of images of St. George that appear in churches. So that's how we chose St. George, muscular Christian type thing, and the process by which it finally became a sort of national symbol. So that's the history lesson. That's all I'm going to do uh, for you. A national flag should be an expression of pride, royfield, solidarity, and togetherness. Is St. George, the flag of St. George, that? Or has it been become associated with particular groups and become an object of division? Well, you kind of really answered uh, the question there in, in your premise because, you know, you're la- it's laden with the fact that it isn't. And I suppose we need to look at the reasons may- maybe why it isn't. Um, for me, being black British, which is technically the term, though I call myself black English, um, definitely growing up in the 1970s and 80s, uh, seeing the cross of St. George was never a good thing. Though, 
kind of what what confuses um, many people about the, the cross of St. George being the flag of England is they think the flag of England is the Union Jack. That's one thing which we need to put into this whole debate is that um, up until 1996, if you'd have asked um, 100 English people, um, draw me the English flag, a significant proportion of them, and I would say it would be over 50%, would have actually done the Union Jack. That is a good point. Sorry, that is a good point that uh, we struggle to understand, we, to dissociate England and Britain. It's also interesting you said you call yourself Black English rather than Black British, if that's what you said, uh, because there is a hierarchy of patriotism, isn't it? And I um, wonder that people, it's not a binary thing. Uh, I, I would say that my first allegiance is to England, my second to Britain, my third to Europe sort of thing. But it's more confused for for ethnic minorities within the UK because in terms of the census, there's no such thing. When, when the census comes round, there's no such thing as being black English. You are called black British or Indian British or, or whatever, Pakistani British, because um, the way that we view the nationality in terms of official census recording is you can be ethnically English, that means you're white. You, you can't be black English. Whereas Britain is this uh, super national construct and you can be a, um, a non-white citizen of the United Kingdom. Right. And I would say that kind of bound up with uh, the cross of St. George is this idea around... Um, a white ethnicity and you have white van man and going back to what I was saying before that it's definitely a flag which is seen as exclusive for people on the left and for ethnic minorities and it's also a a flag which I think has kind of culturally been very weak in England as opposed to Scotland, Wales uh, and Northern Ireland, there's other issues there. So let's leave Northern Ireland out of it just for now. But when you go into Scotland, you see the saltire everywhere, uh, from yeah, from national buildings, from hotels, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Ditto in Wales, maybe less so in Wales, but you do see the Welsh flag. You do not see the cross of St. George flying over municipal buildings in England the way that you do when you go to Scotland. And if you do see a flag, invariably... And, and, and you don't, uh, to a great extent, it's going to be the Union Jack. Yeah, so that's an expression that the English have sunk their nationality into the British thing. And Absolutely. Less, less positively, they've also kind of appropriated British as their own, which is obviously something that everybody else finds thoroughly irritating. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the flag needs to be an object of division. And what I have very firmly in my mind is... 1996, mm. I hope I've got the date right, right where the year where uh, Gaza needed to have grown his toenails, sorry, and not cut them, because he was so close to scoring a goal against Germany, where suddenly, after my experience of the English flag, the flag of St. George being so negative and so div- divisive, suddenly everybody was hanging them all over the place. And suddenly it became much more, it did become a symbol of unity. So... I kind of thought that maybe we had moved on. Maybe things have changed. Maybe there is a different 
um, but, but view towards the flag in the East. I think it's changing. I wouldn't say it's completely changed. There was, was it the 2010 election? And I forget the name of the Labour MP. There's a Labour MP who was representing somewhere in Essex. It was definitely east of London and moaned about going around to canvas on estates where there were white van men and uh, crosses of St. George. And the right wing press um, span that as, you know, how dare you denigrate our, you know, the flag and, you know, good patriotic people that live in this various estates. So for people of a certain age, for people of a certain ethnicity, um, it still has that connotation as being something which is exclusive as opposed to inclusive. And, and again, on a personal level, I remember it was 2010 uh, World Cup. My mother, born in the island of Jamaica, and the, the coat of arms of Jamaica actually has the cross of St. George with a, with a couple of pineapples either side of it, ju- just as a, 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 a way of throwing this into debate. So my mother supported, supports England, very proud of that. She had a flag of St. George, had it, had it on her car Excellent. for the World Cup. Um, she, she bought two, gave me one. I put it on my car. Uh, my partner of the time... Uh, says you're not putting that on my car. Is that right? I said it's the World Cup. Come on, and she just cannot associate, and she just took it off. You know, because it was the wrong symbol. If I'd have put the flag of South Africa, Jamaica, um, any uh, developing economy or economy or country where it was people of colour on it, she would she would have left it on there. It would have been fine, but she cannot view that flag as being anything other than divisive um and 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 it's and it's very ingrained and this is an issue that you do not see in let's say america you know americans are proud flag wavers to the extent that kind of scares us europeans we're like what what the hell's going on here and i think also there is another element with the the flag of saint george in that we we like our national symbols but we don't want to literally wave them in other people's faces. And I always think that's actually quite mature. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. It would be good to come back to that. You raised an interesting issue, actually, that I wanted to pick up on, but wanted to be polite and not interrupt, you know, which I must stop doing. I, you know, interrupting you is the only way to go, really, which was <laughs> the political thing. That interesting example about the Labour politician who goes into a flag-waving area, and the problem is that, the flag has become owned in many people's minds, I think, by the far right. And to me, actually, I think I was listening to Billy Bragg, mm-hmm. so rather like Billy, and he was saying that that is a problem, that the left has a problem with patriotism. But I agree. So he said, look, I'm going to quote Billy at you. Uh, he said, let's bring the flag of St. George home and reclaim it as one of the symbols that we use to express an alternative identity that is diverse outward-looking and inclusive. Now, wouldn't that be nice? He said in a different accent, obviously, than I would say it. But that not that a problem? That the left has a problem with articulating patriotism. That's not to say they don't feel it and all the rest of it. And I indeed, I saw a tweet from David Lammy getting very upset that anybody would suggest that he's not patriotic. I'm sure he is. But there's a bit of a problem expressing it. Absolutely. But it goes to the root of left-leaning politics that, you know, the the communist uh, song is called the Internationale, isn't it? For, for a reason. If you look at those revolutions from 1848 onwards, the left has always had some element of going across borders 
to embrace other people who were similarly oppressed. Mm. Right-leaning thought, it's about us as a people, we are defined as a nation, and there is something unique about us. There is a fault line. You can view it over here in America. People who are right-leaning are much more comfortable flag-waving than people on the left, though people on the left here are much more comfortable flag-waving than people on the left are in the UK. I accept your point, actually. It's natural, which is unusual. We'll come (laughs) up with it again. But isn't it a mistake? You know, as shouldn't we be doing, as Billy says, making that a symbol of something that we can be proud of, whatever our political creed, make it stand for those things that we wanted to stand for. I completely agree. I believe that the Cross of St. George should be totally inclusive. We should reclaim this symbol. The other thing I'd say about it, actually, as a flag, as somebody who likes a little bit of vexillology, I actually think it's quite a weak symbol. Don't get me wrong, I'm not arguing to change it. It's been around for, what, some 700 years, so it's not not changing anytime soon. But I think a bit of white cloth with a, a red cross on it is actually pretty weak when you look at flags around the world um something like the union jack i actually think is a a thing of utter beauty and and design elegance compared to the uh, rather mundane flag of saint george yeah when i was looking at this i did actually go and have a look at some websites about what are the best flags in the world and it's got to be said the english flag did not come up whereas the union jack does come up quite a lot i don't know i mean yes okay fair enough but it's certainly it is a very striking flag I don't think it's that striking. Something like the French national flag, totally simple, but has a power and a resonance away just from the red, white and blue. The Canadian national flag is a beautiful thing to behold. It is nice. I've yeah. a lot on the lists. But then are you talking about it as an object of design or as an object that has values? But nobody surely would say that the French flag is a, an object of great design, extremely ordinary. What you're thinking of, surely there, is the values associated you know, with the revolution, with that famous painting of... The bare-chested um, woman and... Yeah, yeah. Leading the French... That, you know, it's that, I, those I think, values that have become... I think I'm probably mixing up uh, the values a little, but I think that the English flag aesthetically is actually quite poor. And that's got nothing to do... I'm not making any other point other than when you try and disassociate the country, the people, the foot, the failing football team, the faltering rugby team, whatever, put all that to one side, I actually think aesthetically it it's not a great flag. It's not, not a great flag. It's boring. Going to move on. But, um, you know, I, I think I'm more positive about the flag as an object of design than you are. Yeah, I do agree. So what are we going to do about it, uh, Royfield? Well, I, First of all, you know, what do we have to change? Um, I think Billy Bragg is right. We should reclaim it to completely stamp out the embers of xenophobia, which are associated with it. However... My, nation, my natural instinct is not actually to be a flag waver. It's one of the things, as I said before, that travelling around the States, just the amount of homes that have a flagpole with a, you know, with a flag dangling off it strikes me as being odd. Maybe that depends who you are. If I go around Canada, where they fly the flag a lot, I have no problem with it whatsoever. Maybe it is because of who you are that, you know, a country with a lot of power like America, it, it's more difficult for them to to use the flag and other for other people not to react. But, you, you know, I think that says much more about you than it says about the country and you're taking your English 
non-flag raven reserve into viewing other countries and then politically and emotionally how you feel about those countries. It, one thing that strikes me about Canada, a country which I go to a lot because my kids live there, is they go much less for the flag waving than the Americans do, though they do it more than us English do. Yeah, and I agree there's somewhere in between. Is it because of that dictum by what George Orwell, who said that England is perhaps the only great country whose intellectuals are ashamed of their own nationality? Is that the problem? I think there's a, there's, there's a lot of truth in that, a lot of truth. I mean, one more thing about that is that part of the problem is that theory that in order for you to be patriotic, you have to be exclusive. And I fundamentally disagree with that idea. I personally would love to see England as a part of a European superstate. And I do not think that is in any way unpatriotic because I'm a particularly embarrassingly patriotic Englishman. I don't see why you have to say I love being English and the English is best because best is a daft thing to say about nationality. You know, you don't need to say that you're better. So I might say I personally like being English. That doesn't mean to say that I don't think the French are great as well. Do you see what I mean? That this idea that patriotism is exclusive is one of the most evil products of nationalism in my view. Couldn't agree with you more. The only thing I would say about Orwell's uh, maxim is that um, he obviously wrote that before uh, the end of World War Two, because uh, German intellectuals, uh, you know, don't exactly go around uh, waving uh, the, the German trickler at all. Um, so we, we, we now have company in that regard. It'd be very interesting. Is that still the case? It is. With younger generations of Germans, they are more comfortable flag waving and do not feel the same sense of national guilt that old generations do but it's still writ large there and uh, and because of the the history of the eastern bits of germany um yeah they feel completely unshackled from any uh, kind of mm. war guilt in the way that bits of western uh, Germany don't. It occurs to me that England, with changing attitudes towards empire and colonialization and the Atlantic slave trade, the increasing awareness of the kind of damage uh, and impact that that all has had, I wonder if England are actually going to, going to have to become more aware of their past. It's interesting. I think we've got some catching up to do in England. Without wanting to make this a conversation about Brexit, a lot of that was about people thinking about the past and it's hard not to think that brexit vote is an expression of people who are holding on to a view of the past that what i would say is that a lot of the older english do look to the past and a past where we had much more uh, influence throughout the globe a lot of those people are blind to the contributions that other peoples have made and do not realise some of the downsides, some of the horrors that Britain has perpetrated in the past. You know, am I saying that England forward slash Britain in the past was all bad? No, but it did a lot of things of which um, it shouldn't be proud of and it did a few things that, yeah, that it should. I agree. I think 
probably going to duck that conversation here because we could go on forever with that one. But generally, I agree. You know, I think we need more awareness of our past. I do object. This is political, unfortunately, so I should stop. But I, I, I don't think it's fair to characterise people who voted for Brexit as into one bucket. I think that is actually very unhelpful and unhelpful to all of us that we have these simple characterizations. There are plenty of good reasons, even though I don't agree with it, there are plenty of good reasons to argue for Brexit and which aren't about xenophobia. David, you are right, but I don't think I categorically said that everybody that, that voted that way. No, no, I but, you, but there is a tendency to do no, that. No, no, there absolutely is. So let us, I'm going to park that. So we... Well, we're rattling on, so we need to come back to the question that we set aside. I don't want to put it in. I don't want to put it in. If that The question is, let's put it in. I don't want to put it in. I think we should reclaim it. Billy Bragg is right. I do not have a problem waving it. I think we should wave it more often, and more people of diverse backgrounds should be comfortable waving it. However, I do not want to put it in because I think that of all the symbols of being English... Um, I actually think that um, aesthetically, emotionally, it's one of it's uh, one of the weakest. So I want to put it in. Okay, it doesn't go in the cabinet. We don't think we've come far enough in turning that into a symbol that we should all be proud of, and that's what we need to go out and do. Yeah, we need to go out and sell the flag. We, we do need to go and sell the flag, but but I have. Um, an inherent problem being somebody who loves design i still think actually it's just pretty cool come on grit your teeth you might not like what are you going to do redesign it oh god no 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 Uh, what i would say you know what you've got unfortunately can't change the english flag so you know you're just gonna have to forget the design thing and think of the bigger story i think we should have a flag with a with a cup of tea and a couple of digestive biscuits on it and then that to me much more English. enough already so it's not going in the cabinet before we wind things up we've been very lucky to have fiona and luke putting together a sweep up of the facebook debate after each episode this is very kind of them i've loved their summaries so thank you both this week we've got luke summing up a particularly magnificent job if i may say so because we had a humdinger of a debate on facebook especially with regards to why exactly the native americans the us and britain all lost the 1812 war and Canada ran out winners. Also, there is a class dad pun in there. Over to Luke then. Hello and welcome to the Facebook roundup for the things that made England. Well, Dunkirk. That was a topic that really did get the juices flowing amongst our very dear listeners. Let's start by looking at the voting. We currently have 40 votes in favour of Dunkirk going in the cabinet. Five nas and two dunos, one of whom is David himself. We did have some listeners, such as Kia, who questioned whether the democratic will of the people was being somewhat subverted by the wording of the question, which included the phrase, Royfield is always right. And it would seem as if quite a few people certainly felt that on this occasion, Royfield was not right. Even before listening, Andrew was making some powerful points about the British Empire being already in terminal decline by the time of Dunkirk, and that the little England standing alone myth was just that, a myth. But others, like John, felt that he had mythed the point. Sorry. And it was exactly for that this reason that Dunkirk should go in the Cabinet. Catherine argued that it was partly the myth of plucky free England, epitomised by the film Mrs Miniver, 
that encouraged the US to come to the aid of Britain. Lisa took this line of argument further by wondering whether it's not events like Dunkirk that make England, but the concepts behind them. So we can make a clear conceptual link between the spirit of Dunkirk and the Henry V speech invoking St Crispin's Day. Christopher brought some clearly laid out historical points to the debate about how Dunkirk was a crucial moment in the war and that while an evacuation is never great, it did at least mean that Britain still had an army to carry on the fight. I would urge you to visit the Facebook site and read through Alan's points and the link to an article he wrote about the impact of Dunkirk on Anglo-French relations. Steve also shared an interesting piece about the eventful life of Herbert Lightoller. In fact, there's all sorts of things being shared on the Facebook site that are worth a gander. There's some cockney for you, Bill and Debbie. We then did veer off on quite a tangent, discussing the undoubtedly great British victory in the War of 1812. Apparently not all our American listeners interpret this correctly and don't thank the mother country for giving them the opportunity to paint the White House uh, white. Michelle and Tiffany posted some great stuff about Trump trying to pin this outrage on those dastardly Canadians up to their old habits of invading countries. Eventually, David tried to settle everything down with the offer of a pint. But even that sparked a fresh round of controversy around that old canard of what temperature beer should be served at. Jennifer suggested that you need a cold beer after a warm day. But Jennifer, if there is anything that truly makes England, it is that our days are rarely warm. And this is why our beer is. Thank you everyone for listening to The Things That Made England, two people meandering through a range of random topics about why we love being English. We have a Facebook page. We would love you to come and join us there, not just for the companionship and the chat, but because you can vote on today's proposition and indeed other days' propositions, and you can comment and put us right, and you can suggest other topics. So search for The Things That Made England in Facebook and come and join us. Thank you very much. That's so it's goodbye from me and goodbye from... And goodbye from me. I felt a bit like the two runners. Uh, I, I know you did. Anyway, <laughs> thanks very much, everybody. And these are the things that made England. England and St. George. These are the things that made England. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.